Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, November 9, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We've not talked at much, very little discussion we've had about the lawsuit. Uh, Donald Trump's Letitia James and the weird-looking judge kind of looks like uh, somebody reminds me of the professor in Back uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> I don't know why. He just kind of reminds me. He has that professorial look about him. Uh, but but let, let's kind of go there real quick because I think they rested their case yesterday. Ivanka Trump um, testified on behalf of the Trump organization. Um, they're basically insinuating that Donald Trump misrepresented the value of his properties. I'm speculating he probably did. But the bank didn't take his word at it. But the bank had appraisals right. done. Well, if he could say, this is what I believe my properties are worth. Sure. I mean, you Anybody know, can have their Dave Baker could ask me, hey, is your house for sale? No. You sure? No. Well, I just won the lottery and I'm willing to pay three times what the appraised value <laughs> is. Well, I mean, it's all of a sudden for sale. I mean, right. it's always a constant and uh, an inexact negotiation. But here's what's interesting. My interpretation of the statute in New York City says there doesn't have to be a victim. You've heard this victimless crime. Mm -hmm. In other words, the bank gets paid back. But the the AG is proving she knows absolutely nothing about business. And the judge has already said, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I mean, I'm not here to hear what you have to say. I'm here to carry the water for the AG. Correct. To Donald Trump when he says, this is a sham trial. This is a, a farce. This is an injustice and all these other sorts of things. But but I read something yesterday in the New York Times that the the judge AG and I guess prosecution because the judge is part of the prosecution in this case. I mean he's let it be known that that he thinks Trump's a criminal. He thinks Trump should be arrested and indicted and uh, you know convicted and whatever happens after that. Um, it's a little bit like death sentence for jaywalking. I mean that's what they're shooting for. But here's what they've concocted. You ready? And I mean, if you're comfortable with this, then have at it. You know, we were debating Jefferson, whether he's the moral authority of our nation or not. Josh says he's not. Well, now Josh said he's not the moral authority of all humanity. And he's certainly not uh, that. But he does care a lot of sway in our government. I mean, his fingerprints are as obvious on our government as anybody's who has ever associated themselves as a uh, as an American. And he wasn't born in America. Uh, but they're they're arguing that Trump misled the banks by inflating the value of his properties and received loans at better interest rates because of the loan-to-value uh, you know, proposition of the debt. In other words, if Josh has a property worth a million dollars and he's only trying to borrow $100,000 and he's using a million-dollar piece of property as collateral, not a lot of risk for the bank. I mean, that's a pretty sound loan. Um, now if Josh is trying to buy, you know, a million dollar piece of property and wants to borrow $900,000, then all of a sudden they're going to take a closer look, see, to make sure Josh's finances are stable. Is he credit worthy? Does he have the income? Does he have other assets that we could liquidate if we needed, uh, to, you know, dispose of the property and collect our debt? So it's kind of a, it's a constant negotiation. One I'm very familiar with. I've been very involved. Most of my adult life in those sorts of situations and the bank's arguing with you, you're arguing with the appraisal, the appraisal, and then you argue with the assessor once you get an ad valorem tax assigned to that. But um but they're arguing that Trump inflated the value of his of his properties to the point 
of convincing the bank that this is a non-risky loan. This is a a, a low. Uh, what am I, what am I trying to say here? It's a high uh, loan equity value or loan equity value. Uh, in other words, you're loaning me a lot less money than the property's worth. I've got you covered. Don't you worry about that. Well, I mean, that's constant negotiation. I mean, that's ever, that's never ending. You're negotiating for a better interest rate. How do you get a better interest rate? You convince the bank they're not taking as much risk. I mean, that's just the nature of banking and, and business. If you can convince the bank you're not, that they're not taking a big risk, you can argue for a better rate. If the bank believes and is convinced they're taking a pretty good risk here, they're going to want a better return. I mean, that would seem reasonable, right, in the world of business. Um, if, if you're buying a blue-chip stock, you don't expect a, a tripling in value in a month. But if you buy one of these Silicon Valley startups, that's kind of what you're speculating on, catching lightning in a bottle, so to speak. But you may turn around and that stock be worth zero. So, so you've got a higher seeing, but you've got a lower floor. Well, well the banks operate the same way. And, and what I read yesterday in the New York Times is interesting to me. So the, the argument to create a victim, but they're trying to find a victim. Trump borrowed the money, paid the money back. He probably did inflate the value of his assets, but, but the bank didn't take him at his word. I mean, maybe Trump says the brand's worth a billion, and the appraisal says the brand's worth half a billion. And the bank says, hey, Donald, we think it's worth $700 million, or 700, yeah, 700 million, and we'll, we'll squabble over the rate, but that's kind of where we are. And the framework of the negotiation, here's where we are. The prosecution is arguing that because Trump inflated the value of the asset and borrowed money, was able to negotiate a better rate, the shareholders of the bank got screwed out of $168 million. I mean, that, that's what they're arguing, that had Trump not inflated the assets, had he not negotiated a better rate, they could have lend, loaned that money to Josh and Dave and Ken at a higher interest rate and generated $168 million more in revenue. I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are. I mean, that, that's the nature. I mean, in essence, I mean, we can get in the weeds and talk about this appraisal and, and that appraisal, this assessment, and that assessment. Um, he's contested hundreds of assessments. Smart man. Very smart man. Contesting uh, the assessed value of a property is commonplace, especially in his world. And I don't live in that world. I mean, I live in a much smaller and fewer zero world than, than what he's living in. But they're trying to create a victim to sell it to the, to the American public, and now they're saying the poor short shareholder of Deutsche Bank or a New Republic, a couple of other banks that he's borrowed money and had uh, relationships with. So I just wanted to make sure we gave that story its due. That's all the do it deserves. I mean, it's a sham trial. It's a witch hunt. It's a politically motivated prosecution of the guy that looks like right now maybe. well, I mean, there's no doubt whether he is the odds-on favorite. I mean, he is that. What happens between now and then to change, we have no idea. <laughs> and does he lose the trial? Is well, I mean, he found guilty? He's going to lose the trial. I mean, it's not a jury trial. Right. I mean, it, is that judge? Yeah, right? the judge makes the call. Um, I think he's already decided. Well, he said, I didn't come to hear you talk. I mean, he's already said, I think Trump's a crook. Show me the man. I'll show you the crime. I mean, that's what we've turned into in our judicial system. And uh, But yet Jeff lectures to, jo to Josh yesterday about authoritarianism, uh, you know, because Josh has grown up at the feet of Donald Trump, right? I mean, that's what he's insinuating. Most of Josh's young life has been with Trump as a prominent political figure, and you know how he is. Well, I mean, to me, I'm far more concerned about that 
I mean, the sicking of government on an individual citizen, whether he's a, a presidential candidate or not, is something America historically has not tolerated until now. Until it's the guy that may break the cartel. I mean, he may legitimately threaten some of these arrangements that have made people unbelievably um, wealthy. But I wanted to make sure we gave a little bit of coverage to that. I've, I've intentionally not talked a lot about it because I don't think it deserves much attention. If you're interested in National Review, Andy McCarthy has kind of an interesting article. He's a legal scholar. I mean, he's, a, um, he's somewhat conservative. Um, not in mind in your conservative realm, Rev, but he would be historically he would be a, uh, what am I, a, a, a legacy conservative. I don't know where he stands on neoconservatism or not. That's been a big strain in, in the party. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're concocting a victim by saying when Trump negotiated these interest rates, he paid the loan back. I mean, that nobody lost any money. And there were, I don't know, a, a thousand negotiations he had between the bank, uh, the appraisals. You, you go to a bank, you shop a rate. I mean, you carry the portfolio to one bank. And you say, I'm trying to borrow X number of dollars. I got X number or X amount of equity. And the property's appraised at, uh, you know, something else. And then they give you a rate. Then you walk to another bank. Or you send that package to another bank. And you rate shop. You pit these banks against one another. So what smart business people did. But because the judge and Letitia James says that Trump inflated his assets and got a better rate. Because, let me banks just take it your word. Josh, did you know you could walk into a bank today? And say I'm trying to buy a million dollar home, and, I, and I've got this income, um, but but I'll be making a hundred times that in five years. They'll take you at their word. I mean, if Rev walked in and said, "Hey, there's this farm in Pamplico that I want to buy, and it's worth a million dollars," I mean, they're not going to praise it. They just take Rev at his word. Sure, because he's a nice guy, Josh. You're a nice guy. That's the way banking works. Good to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to educate you now. <laughs> I mean, you and I, we, we've had our spats here recently about some things. But, but I just want to, I want to try to impart some of my wisdom, some of my worldly wisdom on you, Josh. Just, hey, Mr. Banker, check these papers out. I mean, I know it's written in pencil, but I mean, you don't have anything to worry about. I'll do what I say I'm going to do. Yeah, that's just the way banking works. I mean, banking doesn't send appraisals out to, um, to speculate on what a building's worth or what a piece of prop. I mean, they would never do that. They just take Trump at his word. I mean, if he says, I want to borrow a billion dollars and it's worth $2 billion, you don't have any risk. They just take him at his word. They just give him the billion bucks. Mm-hmm. Hey, Donald said it was worth $2 billion. I mean, why are we worried about that? But, but rate shopping is very common in that sort of high-flying finance. And Trump rate shopped a lot. The Trump organization rate shopped a lot. A lot. They pitted banks against one another uh, to try and get them to give them the best rate they could to earn the business. Uh, but, but once again, $168 million is the number that the um, the New York prosecution has come up with that the banks would have made had they not taken Trump at his word because that's what banks do. I mean, they don't do any paperwork right. or legwork on right. their own. Uh, so anyway, I, I, that that's all the coverage it deserves. You know about all you need to know about the Trump trial in New York. They're making an accusation that he cost the shareholders of these banks $168 million in revenue. Um, I guess we can go to the debate last night. Uh, the National Review is giddy. That means I'm not. <laughs> well, what are they giddy about? Two blessed hours is, is what some of the uh, writers at the National Review. Well, I mean, it was neoconservatism. I mean, it was the relaunch. I, I mean, all I heard about was Vivek Ramaswamy and the way he opened the debate attacking Ronald McDon- McDaniel 
and the NBC, network that yeah. was carrying the debate. NBC News. Which was great from uh, what I read. Well, I mean, it's a sound body. I mean, it I don't think it moves the meter much, but right. it was the— um, Needed to be said. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, it was good enough for my daughter to send me a text. <laughs> Did you see that? Um, <laughs> I am so proud that she's an America firster. I mean, it's in her bones. I mean, she is, and, and I'll tell you, I've not tried to influence her that much. Uh, I mean, I don't say, hey, can you call me? I want to talk to you about the debate. I mean, she initiates uh, the conversation. Remember um, yesterday, uh, the, the day before we talked about the American, I think it was the uh, the American moment, this mm-hmm. group. Uh, yep. I think I sent Josh the, um, the article in Politico magazine that if Trump happens to get reelected in 2024, they're going to be this cadre of young people ready, willing, and able to go to work in D.C. They're true-believing America firsters. You, you don't show up there with no staff, no interns, no um, you know de- people with dedicated and common opinions. You, you kind of got to work with what you've got. And Washington <laughs> doesn't have a lot of America America firsters. Uh, my, my daughter's investigating whether or not she wants to participate. In one of their um, in one of their training programs, you go to Washington for a summer, and um, I mean it's pretty extensive. Teal mm-hmm. pays for a lot of this, not all of it, but he pays for for a lot of this. But they want to have about two thousand young people ready, willing, and able to go to work in D.C. that are unbelievably prepared in the America First agenda. Now, now we're building the agenda. J.D. Vance is on their board. Josh Hawley is on their board. A couple of other House members, prominent House members, I can't think of their name, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, is a big part of this. So um, so there's a change happening, guys. I mean, there, there's some traction there. It's just not going to happen overnight. I mean, it's going to be a uh, an evolution, a process that'll take longer that, that, than most of us wish it, wish and, it would. And, and is the idea to counter kind of what we now know in hindsight was Trump's one of his biggest mistakes is he went into office and the swamp creatures still stayed there running everything through the White House, the executive branch, and, and a lot of them worked against him. I mean, the leaks that came out and the people that were against his agenda and against him being president. I think the mistake that Trump made was assuming, and this would be natural, assuming that because he ran the Trump organization, he saw every deal that was made. He saw everything that happened. He may have been intimately involved in some and not so much in others. But those deals made it across his desk, and he eyeballed and, and, and sized it up, and he signed off or didn't. In government, I just think he, he thought that's the way it was. Whatever happens at DOJ is going to come across my desk. Whatever happens at the Department of Transportation, I'm going to have a look-see. The FBI would never do anything without letting me, because he was accustomed to that. I mean, he was Trump in the Trump organization. And I think he sat behind that resolute desk just imagining there's nothing happening out there unless I'm signing off on it. Terribly terribly misled <laughs> about that. But if you had 2000 people who were on board with your, you know, agenda and your priorities, that's, that's another game. Now the, the, I don't say the funny part of this, cause there's no fun when somebody loses their job. But if you, if you bring in 2000 new people, guess what happens to the other 2000 out of here back in a few eight, four, three, six, six, one, Oh, nine, three, seven is the number. Let's go to the phone. Brent in Florence. Good morning, Brent. You're on the air. Good morning. Hey, y'all. Hey, Brent. Um, so, Ken, I, I, I'm a little bit younger than Josh. I probably between Josh and your daughter. And, um, you made a statement a couple weeks ago, and you said that nobody our age is making policy yet. And, you know, I said, well, that's, that's right. So, Josh, I got a question. Um, 
seeing what they're doing to Trump now and seeing how they handled Brett Kavanaugh a couple of years ago, how are we going to let anybody when it's our turn to get there? Everything we do, Josh, on Snapchat is through a video. I mean, our friends have it. All you got to do is go to our, one of our Instagram pages and pull up a video. I mean, they're going to rip us apart. How are we going to let anybody when it's our turn to get there if we don't you know, get a handle on what they're doing to Trump and everybody else and the Republican Party? Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate that. Josh, the floor is yours. Because um, Josh is full of himself. Rev and I have had this internal <laughs> conversation. Mm, yeah. You know how they say, There's a change. You know, give a man a rope, he thinks he's a cowboy. <laughs> give Josh eight minutes, and he thinks he deserves his own nationally broadcasted radio show. Well, uh, so, so, so have at it, Limbaugh. All right. So <laughs> it's a good question. I think uh, head's got to roll literally. No, I'm kidding. Um, but hey, I guess the question is uh, how are we going to appeal to people our own age? Is mm-hmm. is that kind of how you guys interpreted mm-hmm. the question? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the demographic challenge. Right. I mean, so, there's no doubt the, the about Snapchat it. The Snapchat generation. Yeah. I mean, the they, Snapchat generation. They okay. don't like us. So they, they don't like us enough to vote for us on average. I think, and this is going to be controversial, but I think that, uh, you know, guys from your generation are talking about how divided things are and maybe not you guys in particular, but people from your generation are constantly talking about how to bring us back together, how to make amends with the left, how you know how to undivide the nation. I think that the natural progression of what's going on and things that will produce the better outcome is for actually it to become more divided. I think that what you're seeing now is it is good versus evil, delusion versus fact, the, the transgender issue is not something that you can compromise on. So I think, like I said yesterday, I think you have to double double down on what is good, you know, on the abortion issue, on the transgender so, issue. So, so let's, and, let's, let's go there for a second. I want to drill down a bit. Mm-hmm. So what are you willing to compromise on? Um, I mean, certain certain tax-related okay, things, okay. maybe health care. So, so, uh, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. Would you be in support of? I'm not saying favor, but there's a difference in being in favor of and being supportive of. At times, politicians aren't in favor of things, but they support. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Uh, politics is the art of the achievable and what is possible. So as a conservative Republican, would you be in favor of raising the marginal tax rates on higher higher earners? Yeah. Okay. That's fine. That, that, so that's a place you would compromise. Oh yeah. Uh, someone making a couple of three, four, five million dollars a year, the, the income above a million bucks, you would be in favor of uh, a, 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 a 42% marginal tax rate. I mean, I'm just making that sure. number up. I mean, we'll sit around a table and come up with what the policy is. Would you be in favor of, and this is something I'd be very much in favor of, Josh, because mm-hmm. I'm with you. I don't think you can compromise on transgender. I respect where you stand on abortion. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to win where you stand. I think you could easily stand where you do on tra- I think transgender is wicked. But I, mean, I think this movement, this gender fluidity, and you don't know if you're a boy, you don't know you're a girl. You listen to Merle Haggard, you're more masculine, so you're a boy. You listen to the Bee Gees, you feel a little more feminine, so you're a girl. That's nonsense. I mean, that, that, that's, that's wicked. That's evil. That's Satan at work in our culture and society. But I think there are legitimate debates to be had about taxes and, and some other issues. I'll give you an example. Uh, I've tried to read about where we can generate more revenue and still be conservative. Because there's no doubt if we're going to square up this budget, it's going to have 
we're going to have spending cuts galore. We're going to have reform to entitlements, but we're going to raise some revenue. I mean, I'm not saying the government doesn't get enough money. The government gets plenty of money, but it spends all of that and more. So as a practical matter, I can't say that the only way to fix this is to cut spending. That's just not the real world. you got another political party that believes something different than that. So if I can get my good Democrat friend, who's not that crap crazy, he doesn't believe in all this transgender celebration, if I can get him to agree to cut some spending, and he'll say, okay, but I want you to bring some new revenue to the table. Here's where I'd go, because I thought about this the other day. I actually had this conversation with a, uh, a less conservative friend than I. I would be in favor of the, the Medicare tax or the Social Security tax on all income earned. You know, you okay. tax the income up to $135,000 or whatever. I'd remove the cap. But I mean, if you're making a million bucks, every dollar of that is going to be taxed. Now, we'd have to adjust the model on what you receive in return. Uh, for, for Because, once again, it's called an entitlement, but you're paying in to a system, Medicare and Social Security. And I think we've raised that number to $135,000, but income after that is not taxed. Now, you don't collect the benefits, so we'd have to once again. But but we're going to have to figure out a way. Uh, if we're going to get serious about balancing the budget, we're going to have to find new new revenue. I don't think the government needs more revenue. But in the name of compromise, as you just said, you're going to have to put some of that on the table, and you've got to support things that you don't fundamentally um, believe in. That's just the nature of politics. But some of these cultural issues, I mean, it, you, you got to stand your ground. I mean, you do, and I think the younger generation are the ones. Josh, I, I told Rev this morning, and I think you'll find this interesting. I went back and looked at some exit polling in Michigan, Missouri. Um, there's a little bit in Virginia, not much. There's a little bit in Ohio, not much about abortion and where America is. And it seems to me, and I think Nikki Haley gave a good answer last night. It seems to me the American people in all these said in several states use the word fetal viability. But that's the two words that I read in some of the exit polling in Missouri, in Ohio, in Kentucky. In, I mean, it, we had elections recently. Who did you vote for? Uh, why did you vote? And, and a lot of the was, you know, the Republicans want to stop women from having abortions. Well, where do you stand on abortion? Well, I think, and, and the word I've heard in all of these different states is fetal viability. Um, what is that, 22 weeks, 24 weeks? And the gestation, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm certainly uh, not one to give an opinion on what is the point of which. I mean, you and I did a Children's Miracle Network. Mm -hmm. We saw a little diaper as big as a, I mean, not much bigger than a darn stamp. I mean, we saw a stethoscope that, wow. I mean, is that real? Is it for a Barbie and Ken doll or not? But um, So I don't know where fetal viability is, but it seems to me in some of the exit polling that I've read, not where Josh stands. Not where Ken stands, not where Dave stands, but the American people. I mean, there's a pretty good consensus when you read some of the exit polling, and it's not just in California, and it's not just in South Carolina. I mean, these are kind of kind of melting pots of America, and um, and there's enough data now to, to lead me to believe that the uh, mo most Americans believe that as as long as there's not fetal viability, a woman should be allowed to have an abortion. Post fetal viability, no. A woman should not be allowed to have an abortion. And we've got to get figure out a way to articulate that in a believable and coherent fashion so we don't lose. Because this is not about Trump. I mean, the media is trying to convince you 
that the Republicans are having a rough go of it because you got this crazy man, you know, as, as, as chief spokesperson of the party. That's not the case. That's just, I mean, forget that. I mean, that, that's people trying to convince you to jump off the Trump train. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. This is about abortion. And this is about enormous amounts of money spent by the American political left to convince independent voters that Republicans want to take that woman's right away and force that woman to have that baby, whether she wants that baby or not. Is it as simple as that? No. But how many Seinfeld watchers are electing governors in Kentucky, governors in or legislatures in, in Virginia? I mean, that's just the reality of it. And it doesn't mean that I don't respect your opinion, Josh. I certainly do. It's a very pure and absolute opinion. It's a little bit different than mine because I'm probably more political than you are. But but we've got to get our, our arms around how to answer that question. And we're a big party with a lot of diversity, and we're not going to have everybody have the same opinion, but there's got to be co- some consensus. And we've got to align ourselves with the American public. And, and, the, and the American public are telling us loudly and clearly that until fetal, until fetal viability, they believe a woman has a right or should have a right to have an abortion. I agree that that's the uh, you know consensus, basically. All I, all I was trying to get at yesterday and what I'm trying to get at today is the, the liberals uh, do not compromise on anything. They, they are fighting tooth and nail for what they want, no matter how extreme it is. And uh, conservatives are not doing that. They are willing to compromise on the sh- on the social issues, not the economic ones. I'm I think it would be better to reverse those. Okay, things. hold on to that. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. John and Florence. Good morning. You're on. Hey, um, Ken. You were talking earlier about revenue ideas. Or, you know, generate additional revenue to, to handle the debt. And had a, something I've been thinking about lately, and wanted to ask you uh, ask you about it. Um, Lottery. So we've seen a lot of these, you know, biggest lottery prize in in history, and oftentimes I'd say nine out of ten they take the the lump sum. How does um, the government budget that? Did, I mean, do they budget? Okay, we think that we're going to, you know, get such and such dollar amount from lottery um, this year. So I want to ask you that, and then I wanted to make a comment. I, I, I mentioned this in the past. I still believe the best way to tackle this debt, and I, and it's sad that we don't have enough patriots, but similar to IPTE, um, I pay 10 a year or I pay an additional amount, uh, and I want that earmarked towards the towards the uh, the debt. Um, you can check a box on your tax return or what have you, but I do believe that if the American got Americans got behind this, and started sending, you know, so much money and said, you know, we want this going towards debt, earmarked straight to debt, uh, it, it would put us in a better place. And, and I think there's, you know, enough patriots that would do that. But uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on those two questions and appreciate what you do. Thank you. Appreciate that, John. That's kind of an interesting I, – I don't know all the intricacies. I do know when I was in Columbia, uh, the state lottery, there there's kind of an investment team. The money as it comes in is invested. I'll give an example. In, in the two most recent Powerballs, the, the multi-billion dollar, uh, I think one was, what, nearly $2 billion, and another was $1.1 or $2 billion, uh, kind of a, um, you take it all at one time and you get $650 million, whatever that whatever that number is. And when someone chose to take it all at one time, it created some sort of financial hardship because the investment portfolio of the Lottery Commission 
had been accustomed to um, a certain percentage of interest and they were getting a different percentage of interest. In other words, when interest rates got so cheap that they parked some of their money in, you know, I guess, uh, whatever, uh, T-bills and some and others. Annuities, yeah, I think yeah, and, and, and the return was not as good uh, because of the long the long run we've had of real low, low interest rates, yeah. and it created, I mean, they had the money, but it was, I mean, it was getting pretty tight. I mean, money comes in and money goes out. Uh, you know, you, you want a hundred bucks or 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or a million bucks, but every now and then when it builds up, I mean, obviously they're buying tickets. That's why I see an increase in the winnings, but, but it's kind of a complicated model. But what about the windfall of the, the tax that the winner has to pay. So you always well, hear about taxes, ordinary income, right? But that's a windfall for the U S government. Sure. I mean, there's into, no question their treasury. It. But in the grand scheme of things, but that feeds into the, uh, I don't think we understand how much a trillion dollars is. I mean, I really believe that it's a little bit like Josh and I debating our faith or Rev and I debating God and heaven and, you know, and what it looks like. I mean, I think it's almost, this is the weirdest way to say it. A trillion is almost like a supernatural number. I mean, you can't even fathom. I mean, John's talking about all the patriots in America agreeing to check in a box and say, you know, I'll give a hundred bucks, but I want it to go toward debt. I'll give a thousand bucks, but I want it to go toward um, debt. I mean, it would be a staggering amount of money it would take all of us to pay. Now, he's right. I mean, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. But I just think we're, I just think we're so naive to what a trillion dollars is. When, when I'm in freakout mode, the reason I get in freakout mode is because I try to understand how much a trillion dollars really is and the fact that we owe $33 trillion. I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's, it's, all, I, I mean it's, it's almost a, a supernatural number. We can't comprehend how much a trillion dollars is. I mean, the best illustration is what we've done before. You know, a trillion seconds ago, a trillion seconds ago was 33,000 years, 32,000 years. I mean, that's just a incomprehensible amount of money that we owe. So, so, I mean, I think it's honorable, and I do think it's patriotic to take a responsibility for your country's finance and say, okay, I didn't create the mess, but I'm willing to start, you know, try to resolve the mess. But when they're adding we so much yeah, every that, month. It just perpetuates itself. I mean, I'm telling you guys, trust me on this. There's about $4.5 trillion dollars of debt that refis before the end of the year, the average interest on that debt today is about two and three quarter percent. The new average is going to be somewhere around five and a quarter, maybe five ish. And that's the fed rate. That's the overnight lending rate. And that's the fed window rate and the discount rate. I mean, the more you read, the more confused you get, but I mean, it's going to cost us another $160 billion in interest, not borrowing more money, just refinancing the existing debt. And we're still borrowing nearly a trillion dollars a year we don't have. And a trillion bucks is almost, once again, a supernatural number that most humans can't comprehend. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, I want to go back to your, not the previous caller, but your penultimate caller, one before that one. Uh, and and y'all got off into some conversation, but... I don't feel like you were answering what he was asking about because I was really interested. In, it sounded to me like he was talking about they're going back into every little thing Donald Trump ever did, going back into his past, and they're trying to crucify the man over every little thing that's out there about him. And I think the point your caller was making, and I don't see, see where y'all addressed it, was this generation, everything we've done 
do every offensive thing we've said, every questionable picture we've taken is out there, easy to dig up. Our parents probably did crazy stuff, but we don't know about it because nobody had camera phones back then. And it sounded like he was saying, how are we, or when I say we, Josh's generation going to survive? How are they going to get elected? How are they going to get confirmed to positions when every questionable act they've ever done is easily pulled up and put on a big screen for everybody to see? And y'all went off into a whole different direction, I think. Now, maybe I misunderstood the caller. But you, you follow what I'm saying? It sure, like sure. Was asking, uh-huh. Yeah, y'all didn't seem to address it. The, and I'm interested to know what you think about what he actually said, which was after what they did to Kavanaugh, what they're doing to Trump, after what they, you know, the, the generation is coming up with all the Snapchat and Instagram and everything you've ever done questionable to be pulled out and, and, and shown. I mean, Kavanaugh had notes, handwritten notes of activities back when he was a young man. And it kind of saved his butt. You know, most people don't have that. But everything bad you ever did is going to be out there for display. How could anybody survive the scrutiny? You know, the previous generations, nobody knew. I mean, you did it, whatever. Probably doing a lot of the same things. It's just not documented as well as it is now. Or the well, I mean, a lot of you did. I did. Thank right. you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. It's kind of an interesting. <laughs> yeah, thing. And I think he's right. I mean, I think we did delve off quicker than we should have. I mean, we didn't dismiss the caller, but but we probably had things we wanted to talk about. Imagine that. You know what I mean? And then, you know, what's the price of eggs in China? I don't know, but government's too big. It spends too much money. One of those that, you know, and I tend to do that quicker than, than most because of my political training. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back on the other side. And that would be a quandary. Now, now, I've got a theory, and the theory is everybody will have put a picture of themselves naked on Facebook or Instagram <laughs> or TikTok. So what's good for one is good uh, for the other. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 A couple of callers were kind enough to hold on. Let's go to them. Jamie in Darlington. Hey, good morning. You're on. Hey, guys. Good morning. Um, I think I'm cool. I wear white socks and penny loafers. I think that's, you know, Republicans wear cool clothes. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> Sounds Arthur cool. Fon- I hear you, Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> I want to talk about the um, – um, the abortion issue. Uh, I think I heard you yesterday, Ken, and I want you to give this some serious consideration. I'm going to try to get all my points out, um, but I want you to think about this. And Josh, you're you're not going to like it, I don't think. Um, I'm pro-life, but uh, my feet aren't stuck in concrete. And I think I heard you yesterday, Ken, saying that we need to get this monkey off our back. We need to put it back on the Democrats and be done with it. Just be done with it and move on. And um, I think um, now I'm not the author of this idea. I have a good friend that talked to me about this, but he he said, look, Trump, from here on out, Trump needs to go out and say, look, y'all send me a bill where we kill less babies, we save more babies. You send me a bill that's, that where we can save more babies than just killing all babies, I'll sign it. And so what I'm saying is he, he puts the ball back in their court. And, you know, does he put a time limit on it? I don't know, from conception to three to four months. That's as far as I'll go. But y'all have... Y'all get to write it in concrete. I'll agree to it. I'm pro-life. I don't like it, but I want to end this and move on. 
Now, there are going to be some zealots on both sides. There are going to be some zealots that, you know, Trump's going to lose and say, I'll never vote for him again. And But there's some, you know, zealots on the other side also um, that aren't going to move. But I think about 60 to 70 percent of the women listening to that argument going, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this argument. I can I can deal with, you know, from conception to three or four months. I can deal with that. I think 60 or 70 percent of the women are not agreeable up to nine months or the day of day of birth. I, I don't think there's any many women out there that agree with that. So he could actually gain some women's support if he put this ball back in their court. And he also he needs to keep saying, I want to save babies. I want to kill less babies. And he makes the media, he puts the media in a box, and they've got to say those things that Trump is trying to push. Say, well, Trump trying to save babies. He's trying to kill less babies. He's, he's actually coming to the line. What do you think about that? Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I would be careful with the two words, kill babies, in a general. I mean, you, you got to meet America where it is if you're going to win elections. You just do. And I think when you say kill babies, I mean, I, I do it because I think that's what you're doing. I think you're killing innocent life in the form of a baby in a womb. I mean, I believe that with every fiber of my being. Told Josh on the air and off the air yesterday when we had this squabble. I am more pro-life today than I've ever been, but I'm not king of the world. I'm not the monarch that rules America. America is a democratic republic. We represent people to go make rules and laws of which we abide by and live uh, at the authority of. That's the way we govern. So, so, So I've got to meet America where it is. It doesn't mean that I stop believing what I believe. I, I would be very careful because if, you, if you've got a lady and she's thinking about having an abortion or she's had an abortion or she knows someone who's had an abortion, is it insulting to say you killed a baby or is it less insulting to say you had an abortion? I, I, I just think the absolutist position costs more innocent lives their chance to breathe, you know, um, God's oxygen. And that's what I would be about. I think Josh's position is honorable. But I think he would admit it's purist, it's absolutist. And if the Republican Party stays there, there are going to be more abortions performed. Because we're going to lose more and more of those debates. It doesn't matter what, what we fundamentally believe in our bones. When you step into the political spectrum, you have to agree that you're not in control of the debate any longer. I mean, if, if, if Josh is behind, if Ken's behind this microphone, there, there's nobody that's ever tried to tell me what to say. But if I were a candidate for office on the other side of this table, as TJ Joey was yesterday, I've got to take into consideration what my constituency believes. What is the biggest problem America Firsters have with the GOP today? They won't do what the voters want done. They won't represent our interest. I mean, Mitch McConnell says that the majority of Republican voters are concerned about Ukraine. No, we're not. We're concerned about debt and inflation and homelessness and crime and, and our border. I mean, those are the things that keep us up at night. McConnell may stay uh, awake because of the situation in Ukraine, but I don't know many Americans do. So, so we, we're, we're almost being a bit hypocritical when we agree that our job as a political party 
is to represent the interests of our constituency. Well, I mean, our, our constituency is, is we're a big tent. We got a lot of diversity, got a lot of different opinions. And Roe v. Wade got overturned. And it seems to me that most Americans now agree that a woman should have an abortion or be allowed to have an abortion up to fetal viability. And is that 22 weeks, 23 weeks, 20 weeks? I don't know what that number is. But, but you've got to accept a political responsibility once you step into the body politic. Or the Republicans can dig in, they can lose more and more and more elections, and more and more babies will be killed. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, you're next, and you're on. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, cool politicians running them all the time. I kept got all the cool Democrats out there. You know, James Clyburn, what a cool dude. But anyway, um, <clears throat> you know, Josh made a point. He said, uh, you know, well, I think you said Josh was an absolutist on abortion. Well, and being an absolutist on abortion, you lose elections. Well, the Democrats are absolutists on abortion. They say that you can kill a baby laying on the um, table after it's born. You have to meet with the family, have a talk about it, they come in and murder and hit it over the head by hammer. They don't care. But I guess what you need to do... But they won't say that, Breeze. They won't say that. That's what they believe, but they will not say that. Yeah, but we got to say something, too. And I know what you're trying to get, kid, and I agree with you in a way, but at the same time, I'm trying not to burn in hell, brother. So uh, I got to find that fine line between burning in hell and daggone winning an election. You know, that's that daggone inconvenient thing about getting saved and becoming a Christian kind of makes it hard to uh, think like I did 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have given a rat's ass if every girl I ever dated had an abortion. Wouldn't have bothered me what I owed her. In fact, I would have been as pro-abortion as you wanted to be, you know. You know, I didn't even think of it as killing a baby. You know, all I was thinking about was me and my good times. So, you know, but it's, it's funny we can start thinking about your immortal soul and, you know, and burning in hell. And I, I guess a lot of these people that say they're Christians figure they can go up there to the good Lord and say, well, you know, I was pretty good on everything, God, and follow most everything. But I did kind of fumble the ball on that murder and baby thing. You think you can let that slide? I don't know if he is, brother. But anyway, I tell you what you do: you take a picture of uh, of a baby in the womb at uh, at 30 days, and then you say, "Everybody, raise your hands and say who's good for killing him there." Then you take a picture of 60 days. Everybody, raise your hand, and then you just find out, and then you keep going. The first month, second month, third month, fourth month, and just find out at what point during that nine point thing. Are the majority of people happy with killing a baby? And if they finally reach a point, say, okay, we ain't going to kill no babies after five months. I guess that's where you draw the line then. But see, the thing is, nobody is showing these people what an abortion looks like. Nobody's telling these people that these babies feel pain. Nobody is telling these uh, idiotic fools that they're talking about ripping some kid out of a womb with a forceps and squishing their brains all over the place and that the kid feels pain and that he's somebody and he's a human being that's murdered. Nobody's saying that. That's why they call it abortion. That's why I use every other name other than what it was. But I tell you, if somebody watched a video of somebody murdering a baby inside the womb and, and, and they were okay with that, man, I'll tell you what, son, 
we got real, real, real problems. The science has really advanced to the point where you can't just say it's just a bunch of goop inside of there. There's a little, a little boy and a little girl that you just kill sport. Ain't no if, ands, or buts about it. And it may not, nobody might like to hear that, but that's the dang truth, man. Thank you, Maurice. Appreciate that. We got to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing really good. Hope you're doing well today. I uh, hope you watched the debate, talking about it this morning. Uh, I watched the debate last night. You uh, still have two South Carolinians in the field. Uh, I don't know how long Tim Scott's going to remain in there, uh, stuck in the single digits, uh, but that's pretty impressive when you have two out of the uh, five candidates on the stage from your home state. It is, but but the crazy part is Donald Trump's polling at about sixty one percent in South Carolina with two candidates from South Carolina as part of the uh, as part of the field. I did stay up and watch the debate, and and John, it was it was more normal. I mean, it was a, a debate about foreign policy, a debate about neoconservatism, a debate about when to intervene and when not to. And my takeaway was, and, and you talked about Tim a second ago. Tim's out of money and looks like the the campaign's about out of momentum. There, there's a battle between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis of who is ultimately going to try and challenge Donald Trump. Is that a fair analysis? No, that's a very fair analysis. Uh, when you look at that uh, debate stage last night, there are three candidates on that debate stage who really are going to have a hard time justifying remaining in this race, given the fact that they are in the single digits. They have no momentum. They're not going anywhere. Those three candidates being Tim Scott, who you mentioned, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie. The other two candidates on that debate stage are trying to elbow each other out because each of them wants to go head to head against Donald Trump uh, to compete for the Republican nomination. John, speaking of Trump, the, the top court in Minnesota, I guess it's a Minnesota Supreme Court decision, um, is, is allowing Trump, I guess, to stay on the state's primary ballot. Walker, you're a lawyer. What, what exactly legally does that pertain to? Well, what this pertains to is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, and that is what was cited by the plaintiffs in this case. They're saying that uh, if you are an individual who's taken an oath to the Constitution, uh, you've worked uh, to uh, essentially undermine the United States of America uh, through insurrection or rebellion, uh, you cannot hold public office again. So what the uh, state Supreme Court in Minnesota has decided is, you know what, uh, we think that Donald Trump should be on that primary ballot uh, when they have that Minnesota primary. But we're going to hold off. If you want to bring your case again uh, as it relates to the general election, we'll take up uh, that case at that time. So uh, it was, I think, a half win for Donald Trump, really, in terms of what the Minnesota Supreme Court decided yesterday. So there's still a chance the Minnesota Supreme Court would disallow Trump to be on the ballot if he's indeed the Republican nominee. Well, there's a chance. I don't think that's going to happen uh, at the end of the day. But, you know, there is a chance uh, they've you know, sort of left the door uh, partially open for that possibility. Uh, I think they wanted to just see what happens in the primary process, see if indeed uh, Donald Trump uh, becomes the Republican Party nominee. And then they'll confront this same issue again, uh, because these same plaintiffs are going to bring this issue again uh, as it relates to Minnesota. And uh, you're going to see this issue perhaps brought up in other states as well. John, the House Republicans announced yesterday, James Comer in particular, 
that they're subpoenaing uh, Hunter and James Biden. Will that testimony be public? Will it be a deposition? Um, walk me through the logistics of what happens with that committee, James and Hunter Biden. Well, that's a very good question. So all we know is the top line headline, uh, which is that those subpoenas uh, have been issued to both Hunter Biden, the son of the president, and James Biden, the brother of the president. Uh, and uh, we don't know whether or not the lawyer for each of those individuals will insist that, OK, we're going to comply with the subpoena, but let's have uh, this be a deposition behind closed doors with your committee or whether the committee is going to insist on an open hearing. And they can do that. Uh, so uh, I think that that particular question that you asked me is still unresolved in terms of what it would look like if James Biden and Hunter Biden came to Washington, D.C. to comply with that subpoena. What is the latest on the um, the shutdown? Do they have a deal? Do they not have a deal? Will we extend them? We got a new speaker, and I guess he'll get some um, some break or a respite from being under the gun after inheriting the situation. I right. mean, what is the scuttlebutt in Washington regarding? I think there's what a, a little better than a week until the deadline passes. Yes, eight days. So uh, midnight uh, on Friday, a week from now, eight days from now is when. The government could potentially run out of money unless there's a deal to continue to fund the government. I think what's like what's likely is kicking the can down the road. I, I just don't think they're going to have a, a grand bargain, a grand deal to fund the government for all of the next fiscal year. I think what you're going to see is funding the government either through mid-January or maybe uh, through the middle part of uh, March or April. Uh, and then you confront this same issue all again, but that will give time for uh, a deal to be worked out with negotiators uh, involving all the parties involved, uh, the leaders for both the House and the Senate, Democrat, Republican, and also the White House uh, coming together to strike some sort of deal. But I would not expect uh, something to materialize between now and next Friday in terms of a deal to fund the government all the way through the next fiscal year. John, last question. It seems to me, and I've not read anything. Um, this is completely instinctive, but it seems to me that there's more talk about the debt. I mean, I watch CNBC and I watch Bloomberg and I read the Wall Street Journal, yeah, sure. and these economists are saying, "Hey, government, you better get it together. You're spending far too much money, and it's going to have tremendous negative consequence on the economy." And it seems to me. That, that, that there's a little more off-the-record conversation about the debt and what to do. Am I reading between the tea leaves accurately? No, I think that's right. And, you know, last night, unless I missed something, the only candidate on that debate stage that was talking about it was Nikki Haley. Uh, you know, she's spoken about that quite a bit uh, during the course of her candidacy. Uh, so you have one Republican uh, out there uh, talking about how this is a long-term issue for our government. Uh, but you know, I have not heard Donald Trump talk about that. I have not heard Joe Biden uh, really address that in, in a real way uh, as, as he campaigns for reelection. Today, by the way, uh, Joe Biden traveling to Illinois. He's going to be in Belvedere, Illinois. He's going to celebrate the reopening of a plant, a Stellantis plant, and also that deal that was reached between the UAW and the three uh, automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, a, a victory lap, if you will, uh, as Joe Biden tries to reach out to a very important constituency for him, and that's union workers. We'll explain. John, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day and great weekend.
Thanks so much, Ken. Thanks for having me on today. Have a great day. Talk to you real soon. All right. right. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is on the phone. Let's do this. I know we got a caller. Let's take a break. Don't want to get too far behind. Josh is obsessed with these markers. (laughs) Keeping us on time. Except when he's talking. And when he's getting his way, I don't hear the music. I don't hear the, the I mean, the break sign. He's got this sign he does to me. Let's not break, 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 break. Well, Unless he's speaking. And when he's speaking, in these absolutist tones he speaks in, there is no break. It's all of a sudden a podcast ramble on the internet when Josh is speaking. Josh, you're going to take this from him? Yeah, no, you better yeah. behave yourself. Yeah, right. You don't have any buttons in he, there. Yeah, you better believe it. You can cut me off when you choose. So cut me off. We'll take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Couple of callers. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hi, you are on the air. Uh, this is Joe in Florence. Is my turn? Yes, you're on. Yes, sir. Okay, got it. Um, I just want, want you to know, even, even if I don't call, I am listening. And I was listening yesterday when Josh got a pretty hard time about his absolute position on abortion, even during rape and incest. And so I was kind of thinking about that. And and since, um, as far as I know, both rape and incest are crimes, I was thinking that maybe the way to compensate a victim of rape or incest is kind of the way other crimes are compensated for. Uh, Other types of murder are compensated for with some sort of damages, Um, even, even, you know, accidental damages. dismembering or maiming uh, people are found liable to you know try to make whole the damaged victim and i was thinking that if a rape or incest victim was financially compensated for the crime she may be willing to have the baby uh, and therefore um, we could avoid the whole issue of, of of murder and just like we have you know uninsured motorist insurance and victims relief funds maybe there's some group of pro-life people who could you know either help support the compensation to the victim or maybe take the baby and find it a proper home when it's born but that was just an idea i thought of that might um, help help josh josh out of his position thank you joe appreciate that if we are in a place of creating a fund so a woman gets financially compensated for having an abortion when she was raped, there won't be a Republican holding office in 20 years. I mean, if that's our position, if that's where we stand, and I and I respect Josh's opinion. He knows I do. And it's not just on-air fodder. I mean, I've told him off the air. I have a lot of respect for people who say, you're not the only person that I know that stands there. There are lawmakers who agree with you. There are lawmakers who publicly said exactly what you've said. But if that's where we are, and if that's going to be the sentiment of our party, Democrats will win offices all over America, and more and more babies will be aborted, more and more babies will be killed, and, and I just think you've got to accept the political reality. And, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to invoke God in heaven. Um, I'll ask this. Are you doing God's work when you have a position consistent with your faith but your faith calls you to be unsuccessful at the ballot box and more and more Democrats are elected and the number of abortions go to, from a million to two million. Well, like uh, Breeze was saying, it's a, it, it's a, it's a crisis of faith essentially where 
he he acknowledges that that is, is might be unpopular. Is it a cross of faith or a conflict of faith? Uh, a conflict, your I faith, guess you would say. Your yeah. faith puts you at conflict w- w- with your reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that, isn't that fair? I mean, Josh isn't dumb. I mean, Josh knows this. Josh knows that it's more politically advantageous to say, you know, I believe that a woman should be allowed to have an abortion up until the point of fetal viability. I mean, you accept that. You know that's the case. If, if you go to Ohio and tell female voters that if you're raped, I think you should carry that baby to term, there may be some financial benefit here in this, you know, fund we've created. You know that that's not going to carry the day. You know the right message is to say we're going to allow a woman to have an abortion up until the point of fetal viability. I mean, that's a much more, I, I, this is such a shallow, I'm not even going to say it because it's an embarrassing that it even crossed my mind to say that say, uh, you know, a, a marketable, a politically marketable thing to say. But that's, that's absurd to even suggest that. And guys, look, I said yesterday, and I'll stand by this comment, it's the most complicated issue in American politics because you're talking about so many convergences. You've got humanity. You've got the unborn. You've got your faith. You've got the secular world pushing in one way. You've got political partisanship. You've got states that see the world differently and than other states. And you have Republicans losing on sure. this issue. And, and that's right the one consistent. Left. That is the one consistent. Now, now, the media will try to tell you that this is all about Trump. This is so little to do with Trump. This is abortion. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, one of the smartest guys I know in politics came on this radio and show and said, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. It is much easier as a Republican conservative politician to attack the Constitution laterally or not of Roe v. Wade. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's an easy position to be. Roe v. Wade is not constitutional. Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. We, we need to appoint conservative judges that will overturn Roe v. Wade and one of the smartest guys I know in the game, Robert Cahaley, came on the air and said, be careful what you ask for. Well, here we are. We've asked for that. And my point is, I don't have a problem doing this. I don't. I mean, I don't think I'm less convicted about abortion than anybody else is. I think, once again, I'm more pro-life than I've ever been. Ever. In my life have I not been as pro-life as I am now. But, but I'm also a student of politics. And I accept the fact that we're governed by lawmakers. And lawmakers saying that a woman should be forced to have a baby in the event she's raped is not going to win you many political races. Therefore, you become less effective, less influ- influential in the laws that do regulate support or, or not abortion. So, so in all honesty, I could say the one thing to do to save the unborn is to be a bit moderate and temper my view a bit so I can get in the game. And instead of having 2 million babies aborted, we have 1 million babies aborted. That's still a million dead babies, but it's a million less dead babies than if I have this absolutist position that Americans just are not interested in politicians who say who say that. And what, what I want to say is kind of going off what I uh, said yesterday about my comments on democracy is uh, like I like I specified, I am in favor of some kind of democratic republic system, but I don't believe that what we have today is what people think it is. I do believe that the 2020 election was stolen. I do believe that there was probably voter tampering going on in the 2022 midterms. 
so this this kind of idealization of oh well we have democracy i don't even think we have democracy in the first place so i would be okay with and i know you said like be careful what you wish for but so if i'm wishing for democracy i i believe we don't have that so if trump gets in in 2024 and he declares a state of dem- emergency and shuts down all planned parenthoods and says you know what um until i find a viable viable replacement eh, i'm not leaving I don't care if uh, that's more than four years. I'm okay with that. I think that's better than uh, a fake election, which I don't think he's going to win in 2024 because I think it's rigged. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Now, I want to say this. The, The luxury you listeners have is listening to a guy who has a bunch of ideas about what needs to happen. I'm not in the implementation business. Please understand. You you know the famous episode in Seinfeld, right, Rev? I mean, we played it a couple of weeks back. Taking a reservation and holding the reservation are not the same thing. <laughs> I know how to take the reservation. We got to find people that can hold that reservation. And we got one of the guys on the phone this morning that is in the room when some of these internal decisions are made, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, Drew McKissick, is joining us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Man, I'm doing well this morning. How are you? I'm doing well. So so I can take the reservation, but I need you to hold the reservation, <laughs> Drew, and let's figure out how we do better in, in some of these elections. And, and, I, and I'll say this about, and I want to get your time, I'll say this about Virginia. I mean, I went back and looked at some, some of the data we didn't lose by many votes. I mean, we lost in big picture, but but I counted votes, and it looks to me like the Democrats got about 5,000 or so more votes than Republicans did. Give me some, some silver lining in Virginia. All right, so a couple of things. First off, in Virginia, we didn't lose anything that Biden won by uh, nine points or less. In other words, the only seats that we lost were those that Joe Biden won by 10 points or more. Okay, so in other words, we had a steep uphill climb to try to take over the Senate in Virginia. And remember, the districts there had just been redrawn as well, slightly to our disadvantage. So it made, you know, keeping what we had even just a little bit harder. Uh, But in the way that the math broke down, any district that Joe Biden won by 10 points or more, they won. Nine points or less, we won. Uh, still not enough for a majority in Virginia. But, you know, more to the point, I think, as far as campaigns are concerned, execution of campaigns. And we've talked about this before, three fundamentals in every campaign, the message, the manpower, and the money to make the first two things possible. The message was part of the problem in a lot of those districts. If you lived in Virginia, particularly northern Virginia, where a lot of those Senate districts especially were at play, every single TV ad, every time you turn on the TV, was about abortion, 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 abortion. You know, they have tried to ride this and have successfully in some places uh, the victory or hanging on to stuff that they had. And the problem is you've got, in my opinion, too many Republican candidates and too many Republican consultants working for those candidates who don't want to talk about this issue. Why? Well, if I candidate to candidate, that issue changes. I don't know. They think, well, we just need to talk crime. We just need to talk about crime. And in Virginia, that's all they did. Not that that's the wrong issue to talk about. People don't care about that. But the point is, when the opposition is dumping truckloads of money on you to define you as something that you're not, and you don't fight back, 
then what they're saying essentially kills the vacuum. People believe it. Uh, you know, it's to me, I'm not using the analogy, it's the equivalent of being, you know, in, in a fight with somebody and they leave a loaded gun laying on the table and, you know, in the meantime, you keep letting them stab you. Well, you're an idiot. Pick the gun up. I mean, you know, they they are not being made in a lot of these cases to own their position on that issue. We need to hang that position around their neck in a big plaque with bright lights on it. They are the ones with the radical position on this issue. And when our guys don't fight back, that creates a problem. They fill the vacuum. That's a big issue and was in a lot of those Virginia races. It was an issue in the Kentucky governor's race. Uh, in Kentucky, Republicans won every single statewide office except for one, and that was the governor's race. And that candidate, Daniel Cameron, he was their outgoing attorney general, was 16 points down in the polls just four or five weeks ago. And he closed the gap. He got to within, I think, five was the final number. And Democrats dumped, I think, eight or nine million dollars on his head, defining him as being radical on abortion. And his campaign did nothing to fight back. They, they were convinced we don't need to talk about that. We need to talk about immigration. We need to talk about Joe Biden, et cetera. And they paid for it. Uh, the guy that took his job as attorney general, you know, the Republican that won that seat, won it by 12 points. So, you know, Kentucky statewide, the candidates who ran good messaging and good campaigns won. The one that didn't, didn't win. And that's a lesson we have to take everywhere, in my opinion. So, so, so Drew, I am more pro-life today than I've ever been. I mean, I'd like to believe maturity and having the kids and having a family and taking my faith more seriously has kind of led me down a journey, down a road. And, and, I, and I can be a bit nonchalant, but on this particular issue, I've tried to devote as much serious consideration as I can, and I've landed in a more pro-life position than I've ever been. But, but I've got to accept that, but I'm smart enough to read data, and I've looked at Michigan, and I've looked at some of these other states. It seems to me that the majority of Americans, the majority of the American people believe that a woman should have a right to have an abortion up until fetal viability. Does that put us in a conflicting position? If the majority of us are conservative, uh, quote unquote, and, and we believe that life begins at conception, how do we balance that political reality with what we fundamentally believe? I'm like you. I believe the liberals have a very extreme position on abortion, but we've not been able to convince the American people that we have a, a fairly mainstream view. Well, when you're not working to educate the American people on what their position truly is, then shame on you as a candidate. Okay. Uh, now, but but you would agree, I point. want to interrupt for one second. You would agree yeah. we're swimming upstream with the media and academia and all these forces that are working oh. against allowing us to oh. have this debate. Totally, all the time. All the time. Yeah, culture, academia, entertainment, every, yes, absolutely. The mainstream media, 100%. Uh, but the answer to your question, uh, I think more directly, though, is it depends on what state you're standing in. You know, I mean, what sells, what's going to work, what's going to have a majority of uh, support in a state like South Carolina is not what's going to have a majority of support in, you know, New York or California. And what works in New Hampshire is not going to work in, you know, Ohio or uh, it's, it's different. And we have to be mindful of that because, you know, at the end of the day, you got to win. You know, like we said before, losers don't make policy. You know, if you want to move the policy needle, you have to win elections. Uh, and that means you know, certain positions are not going to work in some states. They'll work better in others. Uh, you know, one-size-fits-all solution to this nationwide 
uh, is not going to work in terms of, uh, you know, just a, a one-size-fits-all policy position, if you will. That's not to say that, you know, at some point, you know, there, there isn't a, you know, and I hate to use the word, but sort of a sweet spot politically of where, and, and where most people are in terms of polling is they're opposed to it with some exceptions. That's really where the majority of people are. In other words, they're opposed to it, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, hey, but need exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother. You know, you poll that position nationwide, you're going to get more than 50%. Now, you start polling it in individual states, so it'll vary. So you have to be mindful of that. The, the the two concerns I've got, and this is probably where you and I may disagree a bit, and I don't, that'll be fine. Um, in the Mississippi gubernatorial race, uh, Tate got 51.6% of the vote. Trump got 58% of the vote in the, in the general of 2020. In the Kentucky race, Cameron got 47%. Trump got 62%. Did the America Firster stay home? You know, when Republicans, uh, when the guy running for attorney general there wins by more than 12 points, and we win every other race statewide in Kentucky, it's kind of hard to say that they all didn't paint that with a broad brush. Uh, you know, do you have, though, a lapse in turnout in off years versus presidential years? Absolutely. question is, in any given election, is it more of a lapse for Republicans or more of a lapse for Democrats? And that will vary state to state. And how good of a get-out-the-vote operation you have, or how good you're doing to enthuse, get people enthused to actually turn out. Uh, you know, so it's again, when you win every other race, it's hard to just use one race as a benchmark to judge, judge everything that happened in that state. So how do we? I mean, I've talked to some of your friends. A, a guy that worked for you for a long time has great respect for you. He admits that we've got this conundrum, and the conundrum is the Never Trumpers ain't buying Trump. And the Trump voters ain't buying anything but Trump. You and I have redundantly and repetitively talked about this. But, Drew, what is the plan to try and sing Kumbaya and get everybody to coalesce or consolidate and, and, and win in 2024? I mean, I'm not, I'm not alarmed, and I think we can read too much into the New York Times-Siena poll, and I think adversely we can read too much into what happened um, Tuesday. But, but the things right. I read and detect, and you're the expert I'm not, but, but it seems to me that we're no closer to reconciling this internal squabble than we were the day it began. Well, you're not going to reconcile it really until you have a presidential election. And you're going to have nominees, and then people are going to decide would they rather have A or would they rather have B. You know, th these elections become a binary choice. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be Democrat nominee, which we think will be Joe Biden, but, you know, I think there's a non-zero chance that at this point they might end up trying to switch him out for somebody else at the convention. I think it's, I'm not saying it's a majority chance, but I think it's a chance. And then the Republican nominee, people are going to have to choose. And like, I talk pretty much every day to major donors around the country. So I'm making phone calls. Uh, and you'll have basically three camps, you know, that they break out into. You've got those uh, that absolutely support President Trump. Uh, and you have those who don't, and then you have those who are they're not incredibly enthusiastic one way or another, but look, they want to win, and whoever the nominee is, that's where they're going to be. Uh, every primary we ever have, we end up having this conversation when it's a divisive primary. Well, we got to get everybody back on board. What are we going to do with the people who supported this candidate, didn't support the one who won? 
that's a, a question you have to answer after every primary and bring people back together. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why that as the RNC ha- goes forward with the debate process that we've been having. You know, of course, President Trump has said, hey, you know, we shouldn't have any debates. Uh, well, you know, the problem is if, if the RNC doesn't run debates, then the candidates would run out there and organize their own debates with the media, and you'd have more debates. That would be one thing. But secondly, you know, the can- other candidates need to feel like after this process is over that they had a fair shot. That's one of the ways that you bring this back together after the fact. Let everybody air it out and feel like they've had a fair shot to do so. And then once we got a nominee, we got to be one team because you've got consequences if you don't. Last question. I'm going to go back to something you touched on. I think there's a better than 50% chance it's not Joe Biden. But I'm a radio show host, and I say a lot of crazy things, and they'll forget it because I'll say something even crazier tomorrow. I have that luxury that, that you guys don't have. But is there a game plan for Biden and a game plan for a candidate not named Biden? Or is it one of the same? Well, no, it'll be different based on the values that that particular candidate brings to the table. Uh, you know, Biden is a known quantity. Uh, we know where we are with him. We know where we are with people who have supported him. And then let's say it's Gavin Newsom. If it's Gavin Newsom, we know what Gavin Newsom's baggage is. Uh, you know, if it's, you know, I don't know, if, if they try to trot Hillary Clinton out again, well, we know what that baggage is. If it's Michelle Obama, you know, well, we've got the Obama baggage and stuff. I mean, it's it's going to be different based on personalities, no doubt about it, and what their track record is. Well explained. Drew, thank you for your time, my man. Appreciate you joining us. Yes, I know sir. you I know you've been busy and um we'll touch on the debate next week if you'll have time to join us. And I think we're going to participate in your event uh in December yes, down at uh, in Myrtle Beach at the Met. Uh, one one of the we did it last year and we're yeah. excited to be a part of it again this year. Well, and if you want to get tickets to that, you can go to scgop.com, look on our homepage in the uh up at the top right-hand corner and sign up. Drew, what is that? I mean, tell our listeners. Some may be interested yeah. in attending that. Yeah. All right. So basically, it's the South Carolina Republican Party version of CPAC. Okay. So think about CPAC, but on a little bit of a smaller scale. Uh, we'll have presidential candidates there. I think five have sort of semi-confirmed behind the scenes. We'll be rolling that out this week. Uh, it's going to be from Thursday night to brunch on Sunday morning. Uh, we'll have breakout sessions, trainings. Candidates will speak probably, you know, at breakfast and lunch and dinner for the meals and so forth. We got a great rate for the Hilton uh, uh, Hotel Resort right there on uh, the beach. Uh, and uh, love to have you come it's to hear from the candidates. And let's get some training and get folks ready to win next year. And once again, the website is SCGOP, and there's a tab there that you can um, you can become part of it. Yep. SCGOP.com and the top right-hand corner, I believe, of the navigation, you can find the conference link there. Okay. Thank you. SCGOP.com slash conference. That'll get you. Yeah, and make a contribution while you're doing it. Right, Drew? (laughs) There you go. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Thank you, my man. Appreciate you. All right. Take care. Yeah, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Just had Robert Cahaley text me and said, "Um, I've got a few moments if you do. And um, he said, New York City, I think, on the Maria Bartiroma show. So he finds time to... (laughs) call us peasant friends and you know uh contribute to our feeble attempt at radio brilliant i so, noticed he went on maria bartiromo's show first oh yeah and he sent a picture of the set yeah Kahaley <laughs> sent me a picture of the set of the maria bartiromo show i'm not impressed at all i know the real robert Kahaley. i know him back when he was a nobody from nowhere so josh will try to hook up with Kahaley during the break and we'll get robert to talk a little bit about the debate and kind of where we stand today uh in the republican primary back in a few
843 is our number. We have with us a very special guest. He texted me a few moments ago and said he had a little while that he could be available. He's in the Big Apple, New York City. That's where all the, the high rollers and superstars of American politics um, congregate the day after a presidential debate. Robert Cahaley, senior strategist uh, for Trafalgar, is with us. Robert, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the uh, so-called wannabe super strategists are all uh, patting themselves on the back in Miami. But um, uh, we, we had a good time on mornings with Maria this morning, kind of going through what that debate actually looked like. So what did you make of the debate, Robert? I mean, to me, it was kind of a celebration of days gone by. It was neoconservatism after neoconservatism after neoconservatism. And I understand it's a foreign policy debate. But most Americans are worried about debt, inflation, crime, the the border, and the majority conversation was about the Ukrainian Russian situation, the Israeli and Hamas situation. It, it just seems the new ah, the new dominant force in the GOP is far more domestic oriented than the the majority debate last night. Is that a fair analysis? Yes, exactly right. And one of the things that I've talked about since it happened was, you know. The, Average people and even average primary voters weren't watching this debate. Uh, they're worried about what, buying their groceries on their credit card and not these highbrow issues and nuances within issues. I mean, this debate was, you know, junk food for politicos. So, Robert, who won? Who lost? Did it matter at all? Did it move the meter for any candidate toward positive or negative? I'll tell you, I think there's, there, there, there's clearly been developed two lanes in select in this primary. And the first is the kind of MAGA, uh, more America first kind of lane. And in that lane, I would say Vivek did the best because part of being in that lane and being the most effective in that lane is being someone that, that Trump people like. And he's the only person in the MAGA lane who had no criticism for Trump. DeSantis's Oaken comments were essentially, I'm more MAGA than Trump is MAGA. And so uh, it, it wasn't, and DeSantis actually did, I thought did better than the past, but I would say the fact, especially with his bold comments at the beginning, coming out party chairman saying what everybody's been saying in the country for 24 hours, uh, and then called out NBC, like, we're not just gonna give you a pass on Russia collusion. I thought that was really strong but he's smart enough to know that he created a, a social media clip. I mean, what happens in the first 20 minutes of the debate is the most important thing because that's what people take away with. People who go to bed early and people who miss it just see stuff like that. And so I think he definitely led the Michael Lane. Uh, as far as the establishment lane, uh, I think Nikki led the establishment lane, but this time, Christie was a closer second than he has been in the past. He was less about, I hate Trump, I hate Trump, and more about articulating his positions. Um, but I, it, the lanes were clear as they could be. We called her Dick, Dick Cheney in heels. She responded to the heels, but not the Dick Cheney. Think about that. That's what she responded to. So it's like in, in her world, being called Dick Cheney is not insulting because that's the lane she's in. And what they don't understand is that lane may be what three-fourths people in that room are in, but that is not where this party is today. Here, here. 
Robert, you said a couple of years ago on these same airwaves when the debate began about overturning Roe v. Wade, and I remember it like it was yesterday, you said Republicans better be careful what they ask for. Well, um, you, you get what you ask for. Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land, and states are now deciding when a woman can or cannot have an abortion, and the Democrats are dominating that debate. I mean, it, it's. It, I mean, to me, they have they're an extreme. Po- on, yeah, they're dominating the debate. You're exactly. Right. They have extreme position, but they're dominating the debate, frankly, because the National Republican Party is throwing parties and debates, and the Democrat parties won an election. I mean, the fact was. When you look at what had to happen, when I saw the spending in Virginia, for example, Glenn Youngkin raised $2 million for those legislative races. And he was fighting the Democratic Party, which poured $6 million in. So why does Glenn Youngkin have to fight an entire party? He should have some help. Because the, the Democrats knew Glenn Youngkin having a bad night and the Republicans having a bad night would, would signal things positive for them. And so it is one of those things where the two messages is very simple. Republicans are talking about abortion limit and abortion restrictions. And people like that because the limit restriction just means let's not go wild. Democrats are talking about ban abortion. And so even if they say ban abortion after 15 weeks, all people hear is ban abortion. I know one of in politics, if you say a certain phrase enough times, then it is going to be what people remember. And when you're, when what you're saying is, you know, five, six times more spending than what they're saying, and your message is these people will get rid of all abortions no matter what they say, and then there are Republicans all over the place feeding into that pro-life people, and God bless them, that are just saying we have to get rid of all abortions. They're feeding into this idea that there's this mistrust that Youngkin may say, it's 15 weeks, but there's a, there's a, there's a different agenda, and it's it's the messaging war, and it's putting the resource behind the message. The Democrats are running television ads right now in swing states about Biden and about what's going on, and the Republicans are sitting around waiting on who the nominee is, and then, as usual, I think they can pour in in the last last six months. Robert, you're, 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 you're the numbers guy. I want to throw out two numbers, and I want to get your take on There's two sets of numbers. So with the Mississippi gubernatorial race, Tate got 51% of the vote, 51.6. In the 2020 presidential, Trump got 58. In the Kentucky gubernatorial race, Cameron got 47%. Trump got 62%. Do the Trump voter or does the Trump voter resent the GOP establishment to the point that if Trump's not on the ballot, they're just not going to vote? Uh, I think it's worse than that. I think that I think if somehow Trump had done the ballot, if, if, for example, the establishment lane were to nominate a candidate, I think you'd see probably 25% to a third of the Republican vote break off and get behind uh, either riding Trump or get behind Kennedy. But it's like Kennedy's really a threat to anybody but Trump because he will attract those people. I mean, think about it. Think most Trump people you know, if they've got a choice for Nikki Haley and Kennedy, they're voting for Kennedy. And so that's why the Trump people are gonna stick with him. 
And in Mississippi is a little different. You got Elvis's cousin, and and believe you me, it had a little draw to it. He also ran as a pro-life Democrat, which we've seen work in the South. And so that and that dynamic. And, and I mean, I like Tate Reeves, but he's just he, he's as boring as as white bread and mayonnaise. I mean, he just the guy's he's not exciting. And and I really love Cameron. And Cameron should have stayed tight at Attorney General. And he should have let, uh, I can't remember what her first name is, Ms. Kraft, who he beat in the primary. She had better numbers in the general election. She could have united, and she was one of those people who could have won. And then Mitch McConnell could have stepped aside because somebody he liked and trusted would be appointed to his Senate seat. By Cameron jumping the gun and getting in his race, he messed it all up. I think Cameron, much like DeSantis, got talked into something by some consultants who wanted to make money and didn't do what was actually in his best interest. Robert, last question. Trump in the high 40s, low 50s seems to be a trend. I mean, you know, he he has issues in the courtroom, doesn't hurt his polling. He has issues in another courtroom, doesn't hold or doesn't hurt his polling. Is that kind of, I mean, you've always been hesitant to say it's inevitable because you've been around politics a long time, but it's certainly trendy by now. I mean, he is the dominant force in this primary by a mile. Right. And then if you add at least two thirds of the numbers DeSantis has um, to Trump and, and almost a hundred percent of the numbers that, that the uh, vet has, he's well over 50. And the, and the establishment continues to challenge its voters into believing this is a hotly contested primary and that's just not the case is it robert no and 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 that's that's the point we've seen gop republican donors say why are we doing all these and i mean look, the most common thing i've heard in the last week is democrats are trying to win elections in 2023 and republicans are throwing fancy debates that don't matter i mean it literally is you know the the orchestra playing while the titanic sinks Interesting. And that's why people were so mad at Ronald McDaniel, but because they, it, it, nothing has changed. You know, it is still a place where consultants back, you know, back the trucks and fill them with cash, and it's not focused on winning elections. Well explained, Robert. Appreciate your time this morning. I know you're in a rush and you're you're a busy man, but I really appreciate you taking a few moments to join us here. Thank you. Well. Ken, Ken Ard's audience is my favorite audience in the state, and I love doing it. Yeah, because I keep you in boy peanuts. That's that's why, because <laughs> because our good friends at McCall right. Farms. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a, a, some sort of partnership between Robert. Yeah, I love it. And peanut patch boiled <laughs> boiled peanuts. Thank you, Robert. Hey, hey, hey Robert. This it's is ridiculous. I'm I'm obsessed with those things. It's really <laughs> hey, hey, Robert. This this is Dave. Um, we've been trying to get Maria Bartiromo to call the show for eh, a couple of years or so, man. If you don't mind, uh, you know, throw throw a mention out there that she ought to call as well. If I got if I got one favor to ask for Mary Bartiromo, I love you guys, but that ain't it. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got it. Uh, we get it loud and clear. Thank, thank you, my man. We'll talk later. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take a break. Back in a few moments. I don't want to pit anybody against anybody else, but you heard, and I, and I respect both. I mean, I honestly do, and I, and I know both, and I like both, and I think both are trying genuinely to do their best. But did you hear such a difference of opinion in Drew McKissick and Robert Cahaley? I mean, they were oh, light yeah. years. I mean, they're, they're both in the business of helping Republicans get elected. One had a certain view of what needs to be done, and the other just had a completely and totally 
different view. And that's kind of sort of where we are. The disconnect, sure. though, between the voters and the I don't think the it's party. just disconnect. And I, I'm, I'm not here to embarrass anybody or put anybody on the spot. I'm not a journalist. There is a – here's the deal. Um, there's a line in Oliver Anthony's song, because I don't know why. I've listened to it several times here lately, when he says, they don't think you know, but I know that you do. The America Firster knows that the establishment resent their effectiveness within their party, their party, not our party, their party. It's not the disconnect. It's the resentment. Now I've got establishment friends that'll say you're wrong. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to create something that's not there. Well, maybe I am, but, but I believe it's there. I believe the neoconservative establishment in the Republican party are as pissed off as anybody in this world that their voters won't do what they need them to do as they historically have, and the resentment cuts both ways. And if, if an America firster has a chance to stay home in Kentucky or stay home in Mississippi to prove a point and not be loyal and help the GOP, re- remember some moron on a radio show said the great mistake the GOP will make is believing Trump voters are Republican voters. Trump voters are Trump voters. And if Trump is kind of on the ticket, they're there. If Trump says, don't vote for this guy, they won't. Now, they're not as inclined to vote for an endorsed candidate. But if Trump opposes somebody, I mean, they're real loyal to that. And it's not a cult. It's an anti-establishment-oriented political movement. It's somewhat of a revolution. And I'm tired of people trying to convince others it's a cult. It's not a cult. It's anti-establishment. And it's intense. And I'm proud to be a part of it. Let's go to the phone. Baron in Hartsville. Good morning, Baron. You're on. Hey, good morning, y'all. Y'all put on uh, y'all y'all put me on hold and put Kay Haley in front of me, and I was like, yeah, I'll sit here and listen to Kay Haley. Absolutely, <laughs> I'll wait in line. <laughs> but uh, so y'all made me add something to the beginning of what I wanted. I wanted to talk about two things earlier quickly, but you know, Kay Haley has a really good point, and he keeps coming back to the point, right? That that. The Republican Party, one, is not nearly as well organized as the Democratic Party at the national and regional level. And that, two, it hasn't figured out yet how to bring in Trump voters into the party in any permanent way. Now, some people will answer that that's, that'll only happen when Trump passes or, go, or passes out of politics, not. But I think you know there's a good corollary here, right? 2008 Barack Obama voters were not necessarily Democratic voters, and the Democratic Party expected them to be. And you flash forward to 2016, and they don't show up when Barack Obama is not on the ballot, and it's a Republican triple play. We have to avoid that mistake some way. I don't know how we do it, but there's a good look at all the people that came in, the cultural revolutionists, you could call them almost, that came into the Democratic Party or came out to vote for Barack Obama in 8 and then again in 12, and and they were not core and native Democratic voters that's the same effective problem we're facing. Now, my issue one, too, I'll be quick now. I want to talk about the Trump, um, the, the ballot, keeping Trump on the ballot, right? Fundamentally, you, that the insurrection clause, a person by, per constitutional right has to be found guilty, right? Proven until proven it, guilty until proven, sorry, innocent until proven guilty. It's in the due process clause twice, right, the 5th and in the 14th, the same amendment they're using against Trump. He's never been tried for insurrection. He hasn't been found guilty by a jury of his peers. To do so, 
to take him off the ballot, I think the fundamental question will come down to, was he found guilty of insurrection, and are they willing to try him? And that's a tall order. Remember, they didn't even try Jefferson Davis for insurrection. They let him loose without taking him to trial when they had him in Fort Monroe after the Civil War. My second one is to go back to something Jim said that I thought was a really good point, right? The birth rate. If you look at the birth rate of a non-religious, leftward-leaning person or couple, and you look at it at a conservative religious side and compare them, I mean, the leftist non-religious birth rate is almost below one child per couple, while the conservative religious couple is still above two in that replacement rate. The natural mass holds that as long as you can create a culture of life and an understanding within the right and then within the conservative side – we will, there will just be more of us in 15 years. And I think that kind of leads to a how we look in a greater scale at what we're doing, right? We're concerned about the politics of abortion and the policy matters, and we're concerned about the politics and the policy of the culture wars. But we should really view those as means to an end to what our uh, – to the – the continuation of our conservative worldview, right? What if we did things like, you know, why do we turn to the government for the answer to this? I'm not saying don't. I'm saying it's a secondary front, right? What if every pro-life church in America put 1% of the plate towards a, towards a foundation that adopted every unwanted child in America? We'd solve abortion instantly. Maybe not instantly. The people wouldn't take it out. But it would be cultural war steps towards our worldview, that would that really probably should be our primary means of going after this. I will take the rest off the way. Thank you, Barry. I mean, that, there's a lot there to cover. I'll try to dig into that. We got to take a hard break. Now, excuse me, got to take a break to lead to the hard break. But but uh, there's a lot there, and I want to touch on a couple of um of issues that Barrett and in, in kind of reference to Jim that they uh, they touched on. Take a break. Back in a few. Or it may not get better before it gets worse. It may get worse and worse and worse and worse. We don't know. That's the uh, that's the obvious and honest answer. Um, Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us from our nation's capital. My biggest concern is and has been for a good while our debt, our inability to live within our means. We're spending close to a trillion dollars a year uh, annually that we don't have. Resetting of some of the finance debt is going to create another conundrum that we find ourselves in. We're about a week away from the deadline of another government shutdown. Uh, Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us in our nation's capital. Jared, what's the latest on the deadline? Well, I think the deadline's uh, next week. It's it's uh, November seventeenth. Uh, so you, I think you're going to have to see some sort of framework of a plan from, especially House Republicans, at some point today. And I think we might. You, you've heard from Mike Johnson, the new speaker, a couple of times this week, laying out uh, his thinking and, and the conference's thinking on on moving forward. It is going to be a CR. It's going to be a short term extension. Um, I think what's up for consideration is the size and the scope. Um, and how many Republican votes he's willing to lose to gain enough Democratic votes to get something over the finish line and not shut down the government. It, it, Democrats have been pretty clear that um, they're only going to support a quote-unquote clean CR. They want um, a, a continuation of where we are right now for another few weeks. They are not going to support spending cuts that they say go against uh, the bipartisan agreement that was reached earlier this year. They certainly aren't going to want to see policy changes in there either. So um, I think what you're going to look at is some sort of approach that sort of moves this deadline 
uh, into early next year, beyond the holidays in January, maybe in the February, maybe uh, a, a you've heard this phrase, or at least I've heard this phrase for the first time, uh, a laddered uh, CR. That's something that Mike Johnson has talked about, where uh, maybe if there are less controversial kind of spending items, you can extend those out for a longer period of time than maybe more controversial spending items that are going to require a little bit more um, debate and and you don't want you know current spending for that necessarily to, to be as long as something that maybe has more bipartisan support. Um, all that being said, the clock is ticking. Um, the House uh, goes out of session for the week uh, at like noon today. Um, they have a three day rule uh, where you know they're supposed to have legislation for three days before they vote on it. Uh, the Senate obviously has its own legislative traps. And so that's why I say I think you're going to have to start seeing a framework or at least something similar to a framework really quick here. So the, these processes uh, that are just sort of part of any legislation start happening before before the end of next week. That's very well explained. Yeah, thank you for your time, sir. Sure thing. That's kind of an interesting update on where we are in the um, the shutdown and the CRs and the appropriations um, committees. I told Rev during the break, and we'll get to a call in two seconds. I told Rev during the break. I mean, to me, it's obvious that there's a degree of angst within the Republican Party. Some blame Trump. Some blame abortion. Others blame the establishment. But but what if? I mean, I'm being hypothetical here because I don't know the answer to this. I don't profess to know the answer to this. But what if at the end of this ordeal, this episode, this chapter in the Republican Party, what if? the military-industrial complex loses its stranglehold over one of our major political parties. Because historically, I mean, most people know this. I mean, the Republicans have been more hawkish. I mean, they, they've been more adventurous in foreign policy. They've been more imperialistic about exporting uh, some of the strength and might of the American military. Uh, when I was younger, I remember, the, you know, um, the Vietnam protesters and some of the other war protesters. I mean, it was not a bunch of conservative folk. I mean, it was liberals. It was kind of the counterculturalist of that age and era. So there's somewhat of an inversion, but it's obvious to me after the debate last night that the military-industrial complex of the American empire ain't going away without a fight. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, every question last, I did not hear a single question. I did hear abortion, but I didn't hear anything about debt. I didn't hear anything about inflation, heard a little bit about border security, didn't hear anything about homelessness or, or the opioid epidemic or, you know, the dire straits some American families find themselves in when they, when they go to the grocery store. I mean, I read polling, and very few Republican voters now are interested in Ukraine. I mean, it's just not when, – when gas costs $3 a gallon or $4 a gallon and a bag of groceries that costs you 40 costs you 70 you're just not as interested – in places around the world. Um, but the debate last night, as National Review said, was two blessed hours of a return to normal for the Republican Party. Well, in my lifetime, that has been normal. I mean, that's been a very normal Republican debate. What should the American empire do about Ukraine and Russia? What should the American empire do about Gaza and Israel? But what if, for argument's sake, what if the America firsters are able to so influence one of the major political parties in America that it is less interventionist, less global, it's more domestic-oriented. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping for that. That's what I want to be a part of, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's going to be a tall hill. I mean, there's no question about it. 
and everybody not named Trump or Ramaswamy seem to be currying favor with those forces that have historically been very powerful in the uh, in the grand old party. Let's go to the phone. Jeff and Florence, you are on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, well, I, I called about something else, but, but just about that. Um, is there any doubt in your mind that if America takes a backseat and disengages that that China, North Korea, Iran, and Russia would like that? Uh, I'm sure they would. Okay. Um, that's all I got to say about that. Um, but the, the issue of abortion, you know, I listened to um, y- your friend, uh, Robert, and I listened to uh, the South Carolina, the co-chair of the Republican. And they just don't, you know, after that, you had a couple callers, and, and you said the Democrats are making abortion an issue and winning on it. You, you do see that they were handed this stick to beat Republicans with, right? Well, I mean, they're spending 80% of all the private, or the, the, the off-record expenditures, the political action committees that have got involved in Ohio, in Kentucky, in, in Mississippi, 80% of the money has been spent on abortion. I mean, that they're, they're, they're driving a narrative that the Republicans are extreme on abortion, that they want to force women to have babies they don't want to have. And America ain't there. Um, I've tried to debate that internally, introspectively, and I hear you. and it's part of the political debate. And I think America today, I think the American people, I think it's fairly clear, Jeff, that, that Americans believe a woman should be allowed to have an abortion until fetal viability. And, and, and I read this morning, somewhere between 20 and 23 weeks is when most agree that fetus is viable. I disagree with that. I love to see the, you know, the, the limit be at eight or 10 or 12 weeks, but, but I got to admit the American people aren't where the Republican party is. And when there's a misalignment of a political party and the consensus of the public, the other party is going to take advantage of that. They should take advantage of that. Let, let me ask you a question. If Roe v. Wade wasn't overturned, what do you think the last two election cycles look like? Uh, that's an interesting hypothetical. I can say that the Republicans would have done better. I don't know how many they would have won and not lost. And I have not, I mean, but, but no, I mean, and, and uh, we've said it on this show. Be careful what you ask for. I, and, I, I know you have. Yeah, and, and up until now, the Republicans have not been able to 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 offer the American people a reasonable position that they can except is reasonable it's 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 a bad issue it's there's 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 no good answers uh nobody likes it whether your callers like to acknowledge this or not democrats aren't pro-abortion uh i don't know anybody who says abortion's great okay do you know anybody who says abortion's great i don't think you believe that but to suggest that there are some democrats that don't celebrate abortion but there, you know there are anybody who is. No, I don't personally. No, I, I don't personally. I don't know anybody that takes joy in, in ending a pregnancy. No, no, it's 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 god awful. And is it abused? Sure, it is. Just like you know, gun ownership's abused, right? Well, gun ownership is a constitutionally secured right. But. But are there people who abuse those rights? No, of course they are. I mean, there are people I mean, that abuse every Biden right. Comes, I mean, any Biden right comes. comes I mean, th- there, there's a privilege <laughs> and a responsibility that if comes you, with if the you right. Shoot somebody. That's sure. abusing I mean, that's, your that's right. That's abusing right. the right to own a gun. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
human right. beings abuse nearly every right they've ever had since the beginning of time. Right. And, and so, you know, but you don't let a few bad apples and people who use abortion as a birth control method take away the access for people who need it for medical reasons or other issues, do you? No, but, but Jeff, see, and, and my, my, and all I can answer is to myself. I mean, that's that I can't, I can't yeah. judge you by you believing what you believe, and I'm not going to judge you. I believe that life begins at conception. I believe that life is a gift from God, and I believe any time man exterminates that unbelievable gift from God is a bad thing, and we should do everything in our power to discourage women from ending pregnancies. That's what I'm about. And, and, and what, do, do I believe it stops there? Of course I don't. I mean, I've tried to explain, as best I know how, it is a convergence of a lot of forces. You, you've got religion and faith. You've got politics. You've got partisanship. You've got scoring points and being out of the, you know, out of um, the consensus of the American public. I mean, it's a, it's a, and then you've got life. I mean, to me, the central issue is protecting the unborn. How do we protect the unborn? And, and, and I've never argued that this is simple. I've never said that this is clear cut. It's complicated. It's extremely complicated. And if, and if the position was just abortion, okay, but it's not, it's reproductive rights. It is birth control. Those things you have to admit. Well, I mean, to me, are, birth, to, to me, birth control ends when a woman becomes pregnant. I, I mean, that, 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 to, to see so, that, that's so where you and I would probably disagree. I don't think right. abortion so has anything to do with reproductive pill? rights. Is the morning after pill a bad thing? <sighs> I can twist myself into 20 circles when it comes to that, or 20 knots, I'm sorry, when it comes to that. Are, are fertilized embryos right? Well, I mean, it's I could twist myself. Once again, I could. Th- those are personal opinions. That, that but, I'd rather not, you know. But these are things that are on the table. Sure they these, are. These are things that are caught up in this. And so it's not just about protecting a fetus. To me it is. But but you just said there's a couple things like the morning after pill. You're right. And when I step out of my introspective bubble, when, when, when I have to participate in the political debate, I, I do evolve. I mean, I, But it doesn't change my interest. I mean, it's a little, and I've said this. I'm a Again, little bit hypocritical. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't. Abortion's not good. No, Nobody abortion is it. bad, and I want to see less and less abortions. And I believe you want to see less and less abortions. I believe that about Absolutely. you. I'm not. I'm not trying to insult anybody that that by saying, "Hey, because you don't agree with me, means you that you you know you want more and more abortions." No, I I, I don't believe that about you. We've talked long enough. I, I think you're a good guy, and I think you genuinely want more babies to be born. That when a woman when a woman becomes pregnant. Um, but but when you look at the attacks on Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood does, does more than abortion, right? Uh, a little bit more. Your, your caller talked about education. Your caller talked about access to things. You know, the, there are social services. It, it became against the law for the United States to offer contraceptives to curb the, the spread of AIDS in Africa. It became against the law in in the in the two thousands under George Bush. Does that make any sense? Not to me, it doesn't. Okay, so this is this is that ball of wax that just like a lot of things get caught up in abortion that have nothing to do with abortion, but reproductive rights and access to 
make a better decision to to but, offer but in, a but in, but in in the definition of reproduction having more people how is it a reproductive right when the word reproduction is defined by multiplying the population that's not a reproductive right that's a non-reproductive right you, you've got a baby in well, a womb we're going to exterminate that pregnancy and that's a reproductive right so, so I mean we're so, reproducing yeah, people yeah. to take the place of people who die every day but when we exterminate a pregnancy how is that a reproductive right I mean it would be just the opposite in my opinion of a reproductive right that's one that's one leg of this stool, right? You have reproduction, abortion, right? But this reproductive right goes to birth control. It goes to uh, in vitro. But none of those uh, are reproductive rights embryos. because reproducing is by definition creating newer people. So is in vitro, should it be outlawed? No. I mean, I, I, no, I mean, I'm not for I, But you're, you're creating a bunch of embryos. Well, well, let, let, let me ask you a question. Time. You've asked me 100. Let me ask you one. Right. Sure. Yeah, no problem. In, in Ohio, and, and I've read the, mm-hmm. the, the, the ballot question, the ballot question in Ohio allows a 12-year-old to have an abortion without notifying her parents. Are you for that? I, I would say I'm not for that. In, but let me ask you a question. No answer. No, 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 no. I've answered a hundred questions to the best of my ability. I said I'm not for that. Okay, fair enough. But there are other circumstances that that could weigh into that. Don't you agree? Sure. Okay, but that's not the ballot question. Maybe, but that's not the ballot question. Well, that's again. There has to be laws written, guidelines, rules. There's laws for gun ownership. There should be laws for. Reproductive right. Yeah, but you, you keep you keep contrasting those two, and Jeff, I got to disagree with you. The Constitution has a Second Amendment. The Constitution does not speak to abortion. The states are deciding. I disagree with what Ohio did, but guess what? As much as Josh doesn't like it, this is a this is a republic. Thank you, Jeff. This is a republic, and the speak people of Ohio have chosen their path. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Another stimulating debate mm-hmm. on Wake Up Carolina, home of the intellects. Yeah, right. And, and not your typical talk radio fodder. I don't think. Well, I mean, they, these are serious, deep they issues. Are. I mean, Josh has a, uh, a, a, to me, an extreme position, but but he's thought through it, and this is where he's landed. And in the good old U.S. of A., that's kind of what we get to do, right? Well, and and this. Um this reproductive rights and the way Jeff always equates and, and Democrats generally recall, call this call abortion falling under reproductive rights. I mean, I think your argument is spot on there um, because yes, by definition, what is reproduction and then what is abortion? It's basically kind of unnaturally stopping reproduction. And, and I've always felt when, 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 when abortion apologists or liberal Democrats, and that's the majority and, and, and I'm, I'm not here to, I don't know a Democrat that celebrates abortion. I know Democrats who have a far more forgiving position on abortion than I do, and I respect that, but I don't know a Democrat. Are there some, I would imagine? I mean, I would imagine there are. I don't know any. The majority of Democrats I know that have a more liberal, and I use that word politically, view of abortion are are good and decent people. They just fundamentally see the world in a different way than I do, and I respect that. Um... 
But I've always felt when you begin the argument about reproductive rights, I mean, I've looked up the word reproduce. <laughs> it means to make more of. So a woman gets pregnant and you exterminate a natural pregnancy. I mean, God, if you believe God in heaven, as I do, God gave a woman the ability, God gave man the ability to impregnate a woman. He gave the woman the ability, the anatomy, to have a child. So we're arguing that when a woman gets pregnant from consensual sex by a man and she chooses to unnaturally stop that child from being born, that's reproductive rights? I mean, let's call it what it is. It's unnaturally stopping a child from being born, and that child being born does what? reproduces the planet with people necessary for those who die every day. So in essence, it's kind of a non-reproductive right. It's stopping the reproducing of people required to keep this planet, you know, and, and, and replacing the people that are dying all over, all over. I just never understood how it's a, it's a, it's a matter of reproductive rights. There, there is a, I mean, I, I'm willing to accept the debate about, you know, viability and conception. I mean, these are, welcome to the good old U.S. of A. But I've just never understood how Democrats, who largely support abortion, say it's a reproductive right. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD, good morning. You know what's sad about it? It's just as simple as you just brought it out. But there would be no industry in that, would it? Uh, As far as what you just talked about, but... Uh, reproductive, you just mentioned that's what it's all about. But anyway, uh, I'm thinking about the way they spin these storylines on Tuesday. And you had Drew McKissick. He's absolutely right. The down-ballot Republicans, they did win. Uh, And I think uh, Robert's right as well because uh, Trump did so well back in 2016. I think he got – he won by 30 percent. In 2016, he won by 26 percent. Now, Romney won back in 2012 by 23 percent. So that was a good example of how all the Republicans can get together in some places. Uh, But I was amazed. I watched CNN's coverage of this thing on Tuesday night, and they literally had Margaret Hoover, which I'm sure you know who that is. She hosts Firing Line. I'm thinking to myself, why is somebody that William F. Buckley uh, back in the day, used to host a show, and she's on here. And next thing you know, I see her husband was on there. And CNN really went out of their way to try to promote Tuesday. Because they had John King, Dana Bash. They used to be married, by the way. Uh, they pulled the magic board out in Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky. They even had Axelrod and Jones. That would be a good show, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, you know, Axelrod and Van Jones. Uh, so... They just spun that, and here's where where I came to a conclusion is that they were like, you know, these Democrats are the greatest people in the world, but you know, Joe Biden, ah, he's got some negatives, and he's had some negative polls. So I I watched that because they were the only network that went out of their way to bring their top force uh, to talk about this. So there might be a little bit trying to push by now, and, and I just want to make a quick comment about last night's debate, guys, don't be talking about women's shoes. I mean, I'll give Ramaswamy advice. Don't talk about women's shoes. And then I think Nikki, Nikki's from Bamberg now, and I've grown up close to Bamberg. 
women can take a high heel shoe and turn it to a tomahawk. Now, I don't know if she was trying to say that last night. She had a weapon or whatever. But I'm just letting you guys know, don't criticize women's clothes. Don't criticize their shoes. Talk about issues, but don't talk about their clothes. And the thing about Nikki, and I, I wish I could meet her one day, is that not only did she grow up in the country in Bamberg, she went to Clemson too. So she might have could have honed them skills of throwing that high heel shoe like a tomahawk. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Yeah, to me, that's the one place Ramaswamy was out of line. Rev said, yeah, I was an adult kid. He's still a kid. And and I, you don't bring, I mean, children's, the, the, the children of politicians didn't sign a filing sheet. They didn't pay a filing fee. And I've just always felt, that's very personal with me. Uh, my son had a DUI uh, the day of the election, and it became headline news, and he's 17 years old or whatever age he was at the time. And I've just always felt, you know, um, the, the families of politicians is off limits. I mean, if fair game is fair game, and I get that. But um, but I think Ramaswamy was out of bounds when he did that. Uh, and I guess he was trying to point out the hypocrisy uh, between the TikTok comments she made and that her adult daughter is on TikTok and has a pretty prominent a- account. Yeah, and, um, and another issue, I think um, DeSantis had the most interesting point yesterday when he said that, life expectancy is in decline and that's going to help us with social security and i'm thinking to myself wow that's a pretty macabre thing to say people are dying at an earlier age we'll save money on social security (laughs) this could be fixed in the most natural um sort of way take a break back in a few the whole john brown world is complicated one of the most complications of the complicated world is health insurance it's as simple as this you ready If you're under the age of 65, check. You're reasonably healthy, check. You don't need maternity coverage or some of these mandates of the Obamacare exchanges, check. You can save 30 to 60% by calling Christian Levis at 839-888-3970. That's 839-888-3970. Or go to the website realchoice.com healthcare.com it's legit it's very specific but it can save you a lot of money if you meet that criteria uh real choice healthcare.com or 839-888-3970 let's go to the phone daphne and dylan good morning you are on the air good morning the democrats always switch and ask you the questions they never want to actually answer what they believe. And what you were saying a while ago about uh, abortion, and, uh, you know, Jeff uh, has some misinformation. A lot of states tried to defund Planned Parenthood, and they were not allowed to because there were so many liberal judges put in by Obama. And as you well remember, Obama's main thing was flouncing a, a woman that looked like she was 30 years old out on stage every time he was there talking about contraceptives. The lie is that contraceptives are available to every woman in this country. The lie is that the after the, the after 
as a choice when you go to the hospital. That keeps the sperm from fertilizing the eggs. When a Republican is asked about abortion, they should say abortion should be rare. Abortion should be targeted to those whose life is threatened or they have no access to uh, medical attention because they are in an incest uh, uh, environment. The other thing is, with the particular thing that he said that Democrats did not believe that uh, abortion was all the way up to, well, the House of Representatives, after Roe v. Wade, uh, before, tried to pass a bill that would have allowed abortion all the way up, no, no deadline at all on it. And guess who wanted that power given back to the federal government was Lindsey Graham. And the thing that really ticks me off is that Republicans don't stand up and ask the question, when do you think a termination of a pregnancy should be? Under what circumstances do you wish that a pregnancy be terminated? And if they are using it for birth control, uh, and you think that Planned Parenthood does more than uh, do abortions and sell baby parts and funnel money back to their uh, main people who are Democrats, you are certainly wrong. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. When do you want a pregnancy to be allowed to be terminated? That's kind of the question in the public square. Uh, I don't ever want one to be terminated. I mean, I want every unborn child to have an opportunity to live a full life, a full and beneficial and healthy life. But, but once again, I accept the reality of government. Doesn't mean I like it. Doesn't mean, you know, you got to go down kicking and screaming on some of these issues. Um, I want to go back to Barron and Daphne touched on this a second. Then we'll go to our, to our call. Let me ask you a question, Rev. Was Obama a radical well, yeah, he was. Okay. Josh, was Obama a radical? I think so. Okay. Is Trump a radical? Yes. Yeah, I think you could argue that. Here's sure. the difference. You ready? Obama was intentionally radical. <laughs> <laughs> Trump just stumbles on it. I don't think Trump wakes up every morning believing the way he conducts himself in politics is radical. And they're radical about different things. But they're intentionally or unintentionally radical. Yeah. Obama was radical, but very well thought out, unbelievably pr- precise in what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it, strategery uh, to the nth degree. Trump just kind of stumbles on <laughs> radical. Nobody's ever acted like that in modern American politics. Nobody's ever said the things that he says, done the things he's done, uh, believe in the things he believes. I mean, he's such a, I mean, he's an absolute radical. But, but as I'm thinking about the, the, the contrast of, and I think Barron nailed something about 08 and, and 12, you had the Obama voter. And the Democrats were convinced that was the Democrat voter. It was not. It was an Obama voter. And I want to say a radical voter, but a very intense loyalty to a certain political personality. And with that personality is not on the ballot, we're out of here.
I mean, it, it, this this um this John Kerry guy just doesn't do it for me. This Al Gore guy just doesn't do it for me. This John McCain guy just doesn't do it for me. This 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 you know uh, Mitt Romney just doesn't do it for me. I want my guy, or I'm staying home. And that's kind of what I think happened Tuesday night in some of these places. Um, I know Drew McKissick says, well, the analytics say, but Kahaley kind of agrees with me that there's a resentment that America Firsters have about the establishment. And, and I go back to the song, Oliver Anthony's song, they don't think you know, but I know that you do. And and every time the America Firster has a chance to kind of strike back at the establishment, I think that's the way they do it. I'm not saying it's good, but but I think the numbers clearly indicate that to be a reality. Let's go to the phone. DW in Florence. Good morning. Who you calling? You. You're on. Hey, Don. Oh, good deal. I woke up. <laughs> um, you know how it is. I'm, I'm thinking here that, you know, maybe the chickens and tigers most both may have a uh, two-game winning streak coming up. So <laughs> good. Do, good. We, we, we play the most, smart boys this week. So. That's right. But we don't play the smart boys. But we, well, I don't know. This guy's pretty sharp. I don't know. Yeah. So I got two two quick points to make. Uh, you know, talking about this uh, abortion thing with kids having an abortion without parents' consent. What happens if that child has an abortion and they do something wrong? They puncture something in there and cause all kind of catastrophe inside her uh, insides, or they sterilize her and mess her up, where she can never have children again. Who's going to be responsible for that part? Who's going to be all of a sudden? Is it going to be the parents' responsibility to take care? of what they had no idea what was going on. So, you know, just throw it out there that, yeah, we can do that. That's, that's a great thing. We don't have to tell anybody, but when something happens, oh my gosh, parents, you got to take care of this. So that's the stupid, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard is just giving a child an opportunity to do something like that. And then when something fails, God forbid that the parents have to fall in on it and the child and him both have to deal with it. That's just, it's crazy to me. And the other thing, and I'll shut up and, and go about my way. Um, if I'm, you'll go uh, about your way, but you me. won't shut up. I know you too well, but continue. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I've been hanging around you for a long time. <laughs> I don't know you get opportunity to talk, you got to do it. There you go. Um, there you go. The, the uh, puppy dog, my puppy dog is gets pregnant, has a couple puppies, right? Three or four or five puppies. And I get to the end of time, and the puppy's getting ready to be born, and everything's all hunky dory, and all of a sudden I decide. Gosh, I really can't take care of these puppies. Um, and my puppy has the dogs, the little puppies, and I decide, well, I'm going to euthanize them because I can't take care of them because, you know, I really can't put them. Where would I go? Would I be charged with a crime? Would I be put under the jailhouse? Would I be stuck under um, – would I be the worst person in the entire world for doing that? Man, we're, just, we're mixed up big time. You know, we let a kid decide by somebody who's not even kin to them give them permission to do something that drastically change your life. And then we take a child outside of the womb and say, we can't take care of it. We're going to end it. But we do the other ways. And what happens to us? We go to jail or they suffer the rest of their life. We're not thinking what's, we're not common sense smart anymore. We've lost that whole idea. So just want to say those things. Go to uh, go Tigers, Gamecocks, the, you guys have a great week. Yeah. Thank you, DW. <laughs> Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. It's, it's kind of interesting. The reason I brought up the radical about Obama and Trump, what is a, what is a radical position on abortion? 
what is too radical for the American people? Um, how do we explain that or articulate that to um to the 330 million Americans who have a say in 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 how we govern ourselves? And 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 in theory, and and I want to go back to Josh's point about democracy or representative. In theory, I don't deny that the most effective or efficient form of government is a benevolent dictator. But all dictators aren't benevolent. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you know, the kid or the grandkid or the great grandkid who was the king, and, you know, you got a big mess on your hands. Well, he's not so uh, benevolent. I'll take my chances with people governing people, consent of the ballot. Do, do I believe, and I think this is where Josh and I would agree, do I believe that there should be some requirement for voting? Yes. Yes. Because I think. When you ask to be governed by your fellow man, those who are installing their fellow men and women as officers of the law, which is what government is, you should have some knowledge, a working knowledge, a little more than an elementary knowledge of what those people are in charge of and responsible for. I mean, that's how democracies work, representative republics. That's how they how they work. We send these people to Washington but we don't send them based on a 30-second soundbite or some, you know, takeaway from a debate. We, we understand what Congress does. We understand what the president does. We understand, you know, what some of these government, government agencies do. And I just think we've gotten ourselves to a place now. We're so ill-informed, not informed, misinformed. And, and I think that's genuinely why we're having some of the major issues we're having today. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hi, you're on. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, uh, yesterday I copied you saying that <clears throat> post-election you thought that the Trump voters pretty much stayed home because Trump wasn't on the ballot. And I'm just wondering when and if you have Robert Cahaley in, is there a way that he can capture information uh, whether or not the um, the Trump voter or at least the, the magnitude of the voters that turned out uh, would indicate that that indeed happened. And uh, I'll leave it for you to answer that. Thank you. Thank you. Robert was actually on the show at about 8.30 this morning um, and explained, I think fairly well, that he, yeah, he he believes that in some of these elections that didn't include Trump, the Trump factor was the fact that the America Firsters just didn't come out and vote. And that goes back to the... Um, I mean, the comment I've consistently made that the, the party believes that the Trump voter is a Republican and they're not. You can convince them to become a Republican voter, but you can't do it by resenting them. You can't do it by insulting them. Uh, you can't do it, in my humble opinion, by having a two hour debate about foreign policy. And Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Gaza and Hamas and the West Bank and Hezbollah. I mean, I think those matter. And I think a president needs to be understanding of those. But in a two-hour debate, you didn't talk about any domestic issues except a little bit on abortion. I mean, they talked about a little bit on abortion, and NBC Naturally is going to make that one of the issues uh, that they talk about. But, uh, yeah, Robert was on at about 8.30 this morning. Can you archive, Rev? I mean, if they want to go back yeah. and listen yeah. to that part of the show. It'll be distributed later. Yeah, on our... it'll be on our website. Is that yeah. fair? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And you can go back. Yeah. And about 830, you'll hear Robert kind of explain in, in a kind of an analytical fashion what he thinks happened um, Tuesday with MAGA voters or America Firsters stay at home. Enjoy your day. We'll talk Monday.